Welcome to episode 157 of the Reformed Brotherhood. I'm Jesse. And I'm Tony, and we are proud members of the Society of Reformed Podcasters. Hey, brother. Hey, brother man. What's going on? Not much. Just chilling, doing some podcasting. You know how it is. <laughs> Actually, I do. <laughs> I'm waiting for the time that we ask and one of us discloses like some kind of major earth shattering change in our lives that we didn't speak about before yeah. we started podcasting. Like as if we were just going to let that roll out so people could hear it in real time. Because I, when I ask you what's up, I generally anticipate there'll be a kind of a, hey, not much. It's yeah. good. You mean like if I said like, hey, I didn't get that job I applied for the other day? Yes. Yeah, I didn't get that job I applied for the other day. Oh, I'm sorry about that, man. It's okay. It's funny because, you know, after I um, I heard from them that I, I didn't get it, I actually wasn't even that disappointed. So it was kind of like maybe I didn't really even want it all that much. Okay. So well, that's good. But yeah. That, so, I, so that's news? It just happened in real time. Yeah. I mean, the, the, it's... I stand corrected. It's like the opposite of life-changing because it's like life, life staying the saming. Yeah, but that, I mean, that's like some actual news. So It is. It is. I wish I could share something equally like interesting, but I've got nothing. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's all So good. we should probably just move along into affirmations. We should. We're not going to do denials today, mostly because I couldn't come up with anything. Uh, what That just means that you're a super optimistic, upbeat, grateful yeah. person. Yeah, I guess so. Or Let's I go just didn't think about it. Let's go with that. <laughs> Why don't you start so what are you us affirming? Off? Oh, oh. oh, I get to start. Okay. Oh, we, I did love our, this. we did our British baking thing. <laughs> All this drama. Who will go first? How about you? No, how about you? Um, I'll kick us off. Yeah, I'm fine with doing that. So this is the month of October. And it would be great for you to appreciate your pastors, which is generally, I don't know who decided October was the pastor appreciation month, but I'm, I'm down with it. I think we should stay in that lane. So this is like two for one, like definitely affirming that whole thing. But in terms of like other things happening in October, it's also a great time for those of us that love the Reformed faith and that tradition. We're, of course, drawn to the end of the month where we at least celebrate in some respect the Reformation itself, or at least the idea of the Reformation. And there's a couple of books that I end up reading every year because they're good and they draw my mind back to certain things. And I want to affirm one of those books and encourage everybody to do the same. And that is get this book, keep it on your bookshelf and read it every October because it's super approachable. It's short enough that you can do that without investing a lot of resources. And yet it's rich enough that'll give you this appreciation for the, the Reformation all over again. And that book is by pastor friend of the podcast, Nate Pickowitz, and it's yes. entitled Why We're Protestant, An Introduction to the Five Solas of the Reformation. Yeah. It's just a brilliant little volume, and it's such a great resource. And it reminds you again, as it does me every year, just how good the good news is. Yeah. So the, this is one of those things, too, that like it, you may be reformed and of like various you know, kind of, I don't know, like exposure to reformed theology. And sometimes I find that even those who are very well versed in reformed theology struggle, we all struggle with this from time to time, to answer the question, well, what was the Reformation? Like, what did it yeah. do? Why was it necessary? This is a succinct way to kind of move our minds into being able to give like a cogent answer to that question that's satisfying for somebody who's asking it and doesn't know anything, but also is, again, it's a deep enough work that you'll certainly get something out of it. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think um, I'm going to write like a, a weird clickbaity kind of article that introduces the concept that uh, Pastor's Appreciation Day actually was like a Reformation principle. I like it. Yeah. And then in like 20 years, it'll just people will just assume it's fact. <laughs> I'll have to put some pithy quote around it and pretend it was Martin Luther. People will believe Time's anything stupid. you say about Martin Luther as long as it's pithy. That's true. Timestamp it. Yeah. Speaking of that, I've just started, um, where is it? It's on my desk somewhere. I just started reading that book. Here I stand. Ah, and, um, it's true because like he was a unique enough guy that you can, and like eccentric enough that you could probably say almost anything and attribute to him and people be like, yeah, well I was Luther. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of Luther, 
I'm going to move on to my affirmation. Please. My affirmation is beer, more or less. <laughs> so speaking of Just Martin Luther, let's up. talk about beer. So yes. Ashley and I went to uh, Harpoon Brewery, which is a New England brewery, has an Oktoberfest celebration every October. Uh, and we went yesterday on Saturday, and it was probably one of the more fun times that I've had. And, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, people just desire community so much that they will rally around any kind of thing to form community. So, like, you grew up in New England. People up here are not the most friendly, outgoing people in the world. Like, it's a little bit unusual for someone that you don't know to talk to you at, like, a like an event of some sort. Like, people kind of keep themselves, they mind their business. And I was at this thing, and I have never had more people just, like, randomly strike up conversations with me in New England than I did yesterday. And I don't know if maybe it's because people were imbibing uh, some alcoholic beverages, and so things were just loosened up. But I actually think it really does have a lot more to do with the fact that people just naturally desire community. So I am affirming Oktoberfest. So go enjoy a nice brewed beverage uh, with or without alcohol. But uh, Sam Adams makes a good Oktoberfest. Harpoon makes a good Oktoberfest. Pretty much everybody uh, it's a craft brewery this time of year has a good Oktoberfest. So just take whatever pumpkin beer you might be drinking and dump it straight down the drain and then go buy an Oktoberfest. <laughs> that's that's a good word right yeah. there. And I affirm what you're saying about New England. New England is cold. Yeah. So we, we can't spend time talking to people that we don't know. We need that resource for body heat. It's true. So you have to usually, make decisions. Exactly. You got to make the call. So usually keep to yourself. I'm totally on board with what you're saying there. I think when you get into any, any kind of like region and there's some kind of celebratory gathering and it's, let's say that gathering is a little bit nuanced or it kind of has a particular purpose or it, it draws a certain type of person. You immediately want to communicate with the people that are there because they're just like you. So I think that Oktoberfest fits that bill in many ways. We have the same thing in in my community with like, whether that be around running or beer, it's, or, you know, like, I don't know, like building robots. It's just when you get those people together, that having that sense that you're there for the same purpose automatically breaks down all these walls, which is why, again, the gospel is so incredible because if you go to any God honoring church on the Lord's day and you look among that group of people, there is no earthly reason why they should all be together. And so the fact that God through his son can unite all of us, bring us together with all these divergent personalities, these different interests, but there is real community in there because of the reason why we're all there. So it happened. It's, it's like, isn't Oktoberfest like just like another shadow of the fact that God exists and that he wants us to be with one another and that he's given us the task to love him and love others. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and you know, beer in general is like a perfect example of taking dominion over creation. Cause it's sure. like you take, not only are you producing something, but like you're taking this process that is supposed to be that's like inherently destructive, right? Yeast is like a fungus. I, we were corrected after the last time I talked about yeast on the show. It's not a bacteria. It's like a little fungus. But yeast, uh, it consumes sugar and then it like poops out alcohol. And we've taken this process, which is like inherently destructive, and we've harnessed it to make a glorious beverage that cheers the heart. So, like, it's a perfect example of it. And I don't know, like, just find an Oktoberfest celebration and just go and enjoy some good food, some good drink and some merriment and just enjoy what the Lord has for you. Yeah, I love that. That's just any time of year. That's really good advice. But especially this time of year, there's all kinds of, like, great things that are centered on brewing or making beer because it's getting colder and there's a lot of tradition around this time of month, especially for like making beer. Often it would get lagered, which means storing at a cooler temperature. So as the season changes, all of this now comes into play. I mean, we could talk about beer for a long time. The only thing I want to comment on is that as somebody who's made beer before, this is one of those things that just continues to blow me away. I think I've said in the podcast how often making beer leads me into like straight up doxology. And to your (laughs) point about taking in under like kind of all of creation under dominion we've said before like it everything wants to become alcohol if you will let it like, yeah. just let it sit out everything wants to really become alcohol 
So in some sense, you would say, okay, well, then it's easy to make alcohol, right? Like no. just, I don't know, leave a bunch of grapes in a bowl on your kitchen table for long enough and you'll wine will just pop out. But it's actually incredibly difficult. Yeah. I mean, you can make really bad tasting alcohol that'll make you super ill. Yeah. That is absolutely within everybody's reach. But to do it well and to make it awesome, it is like this harnessing, so to speak, or using these principles that God has created in all the world to take a living organism, the cellular organism, and harness it in such a way that it's transforming all these other ingredients. And even in that, there's something like beautiful and regenerative and something in there about the gospel transforming us and never being the same. So it's no matter which way you cut it, Luther was right. Drink some beer. Yeah. And if people say, listen, you're Christian, you can't drink beer. I believe Luther also addressed that as well, to which I think he said something like, I'm going to drink it in your face anyway. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Les uh, Lanfear from formerly from the reform podcast. Cause that show hasn't made an episode in like a year. Uh, but he uh, in, in the reform pub the other day, this, you know, the topic of alcohol comes up frequently. <laughs> and he said, he was talking <laughs> about the, the concept of the weaker brother. And he said, if I have a friend who used to be an alcoholic and struggles, then what the Bible calls me to is to sacrifice my freedom in order to help him not to fall back into sin. He said, if I'm faced with the legalist, then what the Bible commands me to is something closer to accidentally spearing it, smelling, uh, spilling it all over their head. <laughs> and I was like, that's pretty much right. That's about right. And I, I'm yeah. going to put a bunch of like King James only independent fundamentalist Baptist keywords in the episode description. So that way some <laughs> poor independent fundamentalist Baptist gets on here and he's like, I never. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> And then he's going to say something about peeing on a wall or something. Is that, uh, first of all, I, I, that, that last part, I have no idea what you're talking about, but I, I just loved, is that the standard go-to response for fundamentalist Baptists? Like the oh my? Yeah. Yeah. They get really, really like, like a Southern gentleman style is what I'm thinking. Gotcha. I never, bless his heart. I, I never, well, I declare. I yeah, declare. Great. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, see, this is like super upbeat. I don't even know what to do now that we're not actually denying anything. It just seems like I feel so refreshed. Yeah. So jubilant. Yeah. We should probably talk about some judgment and like death and destruction. Yes. If only there was something that could move us in that direction right now. Yeah. We're going to talk about the prophet Micah. We're continuing on in uh, Micah cast and we are in chapter three. And we have just a few verses, but I think there's a lot to it. And I think we're going to get some good meaty conversation. So, Jesse, do you have uh, verses five through eight up in front of you? You bet I do. Why don't you go and read those? So here's Micah chapter three, verses five through eight from the ESV. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seer shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power, with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. So um, we... You know, we looked last week at uh, the beginning of this chapter and we commented how after sort of this little uh, interruption where God seems to like not be able to contain himself anymore and just has to issue forth this promise of mercy for his people, it jumps straight back into judgment and condemnation uh, on the powerful people of uh, Jerusalem and Samaria. And so the very first part of this chapter uh, section or verses one through four was a kind of a condemnation on the the judicial and the um, the royal elements of the rulership in Judah, and now verses five through eight right. switches over to the false prophets that had been proclaiming peace when the true prophets of God had been proclaiming destruction because of the sin of the people. So this this section is interesting because, you know, there's a, a little bit of disagreement um, that I found in the commentaries about exactly what's going on here and who these false prophets are. So, you know, we, we tend to read false prophet 
and we assume that a false prophet is has always been a false prophet. But some of right. the language in here actually seems to imply that the the prophets that Micah is uh, addressing were actually at one point those who did prophesy what the Lord had given them and then over time had become corrupt and begun to prophesy for greedy gain. And so you see in um, verses six uh, and seven, where it's talking about how the sun will go down on them. One of the commentators basically talked about how this is sort of the dimming of the illumination of the Holy spirit that as, as they begun to, uh, fail to proclaim what God had given them, that the inspiration that they had as prophets, the sun goes down on their inspiration. And now now instead of walking in the light as a true prophet does, they now walk in, in both spiritual darkness with no knowledge of God's word. And I don't think that's inconceivable because I'm with you. Oftentimes when we read these types of things, we think that, well, there's just a group of bad people that are doing bad things and they've always been bad and annoying. Right. And yet I think what's more true in all of our lives and perhaps in this text as well is that there's there's a subtlety here that we're talking about the people of God and that it's not inconceivable that these prophets who at one time would have been esteemed by the people because they were prophesying the truth of God, that it is so easy for any of us to slip from that type of place of authority and then to turn around to use that for some type of unjust gain. Yeah. And what I find interesting is that he basically makes this whole case against these prophets. I actually think this, this suits your argument better or supports it rather is that these false prophets seem to be opportunists. Right. So to, to get into that position, one might presume that at some point in time, it makes sense that they would have been telling the truth and being see, seen as legitimate prophets because what they were prophesying was coming to take place. Right. So with that authority then in mind, now we have these false prophets tailoring their pronouncements of peace and security to the desires of those who quite literally, according to this text, are feeding them. So I find it interesting that the source of evil that Micah points out here is this desire for gain. And apparently it was so strong that there was no difference between what was said was true or false, but they really only sought to just get something of value in return. And there's like such a covetousness here that it's not only just enough for them to say, well, I'm going to suit these particular prophecies to those I know who will pay me for them. But they actually go forward beyond that to declare war against anyone who didn't feed them. So we're talking about like a, a serious amount of, uh, of evil from this covetous nature. And I think that actually makes more sense to me in the context of somebody who perhaps would have slowly over time moved away from true prophetic pronouncements under, under God himself to one who would might abuse that power. In other words, it's not, it's not hard for me to conceive that that jump was made. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, when you think about most, um, most people we would say on one level or another are false prophets. If you look at most of the, uh, prosperity preachers, especially, or even, even the, um, you know, like people who just have sort of gone off the rails in terms of biblical fidelity. If you listen to, um, Rob Bell, for example, if you listen to some of his early work, some of his early preaching, he was always sort of like emotive and sort of touchy feely, which I never really resonated with, but some of the theology that he originally started teaching was actually not that bad. Um, the same could be said of someone like Francis Chan, who, as of late, has kind of gone off the rails in the charismatic movement. Um, even Joel Olstein, early in his career, had certainly uh, a much more exegetical approach. And as they as they realized, as they started to draw crowds, they just kept going off these rails, right? So it's not usually the case that someone explodes onto the scene of whatever it is, just totally wrong and totally false. And that's... Right. That's the danger of this is that, you know, it's it's a degree off here, a degree off there, and it changes the entire trajectory of things. And so, what you know, what we see here in Micah is that there's a confrontation of Micah um, by Micah of these false prophets. And he's he's both judging them, but also calling them to account. And any time that that a, a prophet issues judgment is also an opportunity to repent. And so we also, you know, we see here in this section, Micah is calling out to the false prophets. He's he's accusing them of their sin. He's explaining to them what their judgment is. And that 
implies a call to repentance as well. So I just think we need to, you know, we need to look at this carefully. And, and when we look at it and apply it to our day, you know, how do we address and how do we confront those who we believe to be false teachers? Do we just rail against them? Do we issue insults? Um, the prophets certainly were not above, uh, inspired by the Holy Spirit, were not above insulting language, right? The 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 uh, conflict between Elijah and the prophets of Baal, he basically says like, well, your God must be taking a crap somewhere, which is why he's not answering you, you know? Right. And so he, he's encouraging them to continue hurting themselves. And then ultimately he comes to this place where he just exposes the glory of God and the rest happens according to God's purpose. But we have to be intentional when we address and confront those that we believe are in error, um, even those who we believe are in gross error and even those who we believe are in gross error and doing it maliciously. We still have to remember that we are not the judges of those people. We, we, sh we should be exercising righteous discernment right? It's, it's perfectly okay. We do it on this show a lot. It's perfectly okay to call out a person for their erroneous teaching. Um, it's perfectly okay to exercise righteous judgment and recognize when someone is not demonstrating fruit that's keeping in repentance. But in the midst of all of that, we have to recognize that those people do not become our enemies. They become people that we're to attempt to snatch out of the fire, as Jude puts it. Right. And to that point... I think a place where we could really apply this in our modern context is perhaps more within the realm of our own friendships and spheres of influence. Yeah. So, I mean, how many times have you come across, you had a friend who is you know, listening to something, reading something, and it's from a source that you know to be one that's off the mark. I mean, mm -hmm. th that's the opportunity here to speak up. So sometimes it's not just speaking out against writ large or kind of in an enigmatic way against somebody who's teaching, but it's to apply that in our lives and in our relationships with others as they, as we ourselves and others are processing information that we receive from all these different sources. And I think this is actually bound to happen a lot more frequently now because of the proliferation of media news and information, yeah. which just makes it easier for anybody to broadcast their message, which means that even before we get to the point where we can confront these types of things, we have to know whether they're worth confronting, which means we need to have a solid base for doctrine and theology. And so what's interesting to me is that here God is allowing these false prophets in the midst of his people, Israel. He says that at the beginning of the verse, set of verses there. He refers to them again as my people, these adopted sons and daughters who are not worthy of that honor, but God is counting them as his people that he might punish the wickedness of the false teachers of which Micah is accusing them. And in the midst of this, I think one should ask, why are they even there to begin with? Why would God yeah. even allow them to have a mouthpiece, to have a foothold, to have a place. And if you go back to Deuteronomy 13, I mean, God declares that whenever he has permitted false prophets to come among his people, it was to try them to see what sort of people they really were. Right. And just like in every epoch and era, I think we're coming into the same of our own in this particular modern age in which we live. And we need to be the kind of people that can discern good teaching from bad and then are brave enough when we're with our friends and our family and we're discussing that to call out that teaching so as to mutually encourage one another toward good and true doctrine as opposed to the doctrine which doesn't satisfy. Yeah. So what I find that this applies for me is that in many conversations, especially in my place of work or uh, with some of my secular friends or non-Christian friends, unbelieving friends, is they're quick to identify with some of that common teaching that just sounds really, really good. And I find that sometimes I need to be bolder there. I need to take up a little bit more courage and say, that's just wrong teaching. And let me explain to you why that is. And, you know, people can be insulted by that. For instance, let me give you a quick example uh, of, of a place where this type of application, I think, can cause, at, at the very least, some social awkwardness. So uh, my wife was with a group of people recently with uh, a bunch of believers. And somebody was talking about the book, The Shack. Yeah. And how that was their among like their most favorite books. And my wife, to her credit, did not hesitate in a loving way to say why that was a horrible book to have as your favorite book. Yeah. And I was really proud of her in that moment because there's a, there's a lot of false teaching that's embedded in that. And there is the time where as Christians, we ought to in love to one another, not take fidelity to the scriptures lightly, but confront that kind of thing again in a way that's a lot more light than heat, but that we're also not afraid to bring the heat because this is something that's very important. Yeah. So I think there's like a little bit of a nuanced application 
that requires us to be brave among our friends. Yeah. Yeah. You know, when I was reading, studying for this, um, and I was thinking about that concept of why are there false prophets? How do we handle them? What should we do with them? Because we'll, we'll get into how Micah handles them here in a little bit. But it, it made me think of 1 Corinthians 11, um, chapter 18, uh, verse 18. And it says, For in the first part, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, and this is the, the part that struck me, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So right. I think sometimes, you know, we we think about polemics or, you know, um, contending for the faith or refuting those who are in error. We think about that primarily as a, um, a defense of the truth, almost like an evangelical or an evangelistic ministry. And it certainly is right. We, we do those things in order to, um, promulgate the gospel to make sure that those who are in the faith are grounded in the faith once delivered for the saints instead of something else. But beyond that, we also do that because it marks us off as those who are serious about following Jesus and who are following the pattern of sound words, which the apostles handed down to us. And so, so polemics, whether it's um, apologetics, right, which is polemics primarily in the context of non-Christians or in internal polemics where you're talking about refuting false teaching or refuting erroneous uh, heterodox teachings like, you know, orthodox um, uh, Arminianism or even elements of Lutheranism um, or erroneous teaching within um, reformed theology, like the federal vision or like EFS in some instances, we mark ourselves off as those who are following the truth by standing up and refuting those who are teaching error. So it's important right. to do that, not just because it's important to refute those things, but because it's what we're called to do and be, and we can't demonstrate what we are unless we demonstrate what we are. Exactly. It says, as if God gives this as a form of spiritual resistance, so mm-hmm. to speak, you know, like running up a hill with all that resistance of gravity is hard on the legs and your cardiovascular system. But that's the very thing that builds muscle and endurance. Right. And in somewhat the same way, here we have God allowing this in his preordination so that we might be the ones, like you said, that demonstrate how strongly we desire to run after the Lord Jesus Christ and how we desire to have that kind of fidelity to the scriptures, the whole and full counsel of God. And it strikes me that, you know, we've come across a lot of questions on this podcast, and I would say this exact vein. And, and what I'm struck with right now is that, you know, some people may be thinking, well, I'm not the kind of person that wants to participate in poll mix. Like, I don't really want to go out and take on this really strong air of trying to confront all these things. I don't think that you do, because I think that if you're honoring God, if you're serving him faithfully, if you're being a part of the family of God, this stuff will just fall into your lap all the time. Right. And But we have to be disciplined and diligent and ready to give an account, as Paul encourages, because this is the, this is the way that we affirm that we are living in faithfulness and obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ, that we know who he is, that we know his commands, that we know the scriptures. And so I ju- this is just, once again, like another case for having a strong basis for theology, because without that, not only we just tossed you know, to and fro, but without that, we're not marking ourselves as, as God's children, because right. God's children are those who are committed to learning about who he is and what he desires for us. And then living that out in the world. And part of living that out is correcting error. Yeah. And so one might say, if you're not correcting error, it's because of only one of two things, either one, the error doesn't exist, which is unlikely, or two, you can't discern it. And so that's a problem either way. Yeah. Or there's a third option you fear the consequences on a a horizontal level for doing that because it, it is hard and it does usually have relational consequences, right? It would be, this this is how every single church that has slid into liberalism started with this, right? They made the decision to allow something that was a matter of first importance to not be a matter of first importance. And they elevated horizontal unity above vertical clarity of doctrine. And so, you know, that might be something as seemingly um, harmless as complementarianism, right? If you compromise on 
who can be in the pulpit, then uh, then you can open yourself up to a whole range of partnerships with other people who are preaching the gospel. But the problem with that is in order to do that, in order to actually allow for egalitarianism to be true, you have to radically change your interpretive methodology of the Bible. So all of a sudden, like I said, I've said before, I'm not one of those people that says all egalitarians are necessary, necessarily liberals, but you do have to adopt a certain kind of liberalizing hermeneutic in order to interpret right. the passages the way you have to in order to allow for egalitarianism. So, so that idea that it's no longer the the author that has the intention and that the original context uh, doesn't drive your hermeneutic, but it has to do with how how we apply the text now, that's a liberalizing tendency that most egalitarians have picked up. And so it starts with usually with these small areas where you refuse to stand for the truth. And then all of a sudden you slide and you slide and you slide. And now all of a sudden you're accepting uh, a theology that denies the incarnation of Christ. And here's, here's a real world example, right? I went, I'm not going to say his name, but I went to college with a friend of mine who, um, when we just had gotten done with college, he was going to pastoral ministry and he was hoping to find a position in a conservative church. And so he accepted a call to a PC USA church. And when I said to him, you know, I'm a little bit concerned about this because the PC USA is definitely headed in the right direction. He said something along the lines of, well, this particular church is not, and I'm only going to be here for a few years and I'm not going to have to deal with it. By the time I find another church, you know, I'll be out of here. So he then moved somewhere else and he took another job at another PCA church. I was a little bit more liberal. And I said, you know, I'm, I'm still really concerned about this. You don't seem to be making progress towards a more conservative denomination. And his answer was like, well, now that I've interacted with people who hold those views a little bit more, uh, you know, we really are, are unified in the, in the central things of the gospel. We, you know, we both understand the Trinity. We affirm the existence of sin. We affirm the deity of Christ. And so, um, you know, then he, he went to Princeton and he got his MDiv at Princeton and that you keep moving, you keep moving. And recently I talked to him and I, I just flat out asked him, I said, where are you on same sex marriage? And he said, well, I've accepted it now because, you know, I'm still, we're still really unified in, uh, the centrality of God's peacemaking mission in the world. And I said, well, have you, have you accepted, um, the, uh, denial of the deity of Christ yet? And he said, oh, I'll never do that. And I, I said to him, I said, well, I remember a time that we had a conversation in college right before you took your first post where you said you would never accept same-sex marriage either. So so you move down this path and it's, again, it's just matters of degrees, right? It's the same thing we started talking about earlier, that you, you move in matters of degrees and all of a sudden you're on a different trajectory that when you're close, it doesn't seem like a big deal, but you go 100 miles and all of a sudden you're 200 miles off course from where you're supposed to be. Right. That's a great example. I think if anything, this little pericope here helps us to hone, hone in on the idea that any one of us can fall away when we take our eye away from our off of Jesus Christ. So it's not as if we study theology, of course, because we want to earn something. There is, however, a way in which we embrace theology. We run after Christ. We go to the scriptures. We read the scriptures. We the scripture read us. We meditate in almost a paranoid way because we never want to be deluded and we yeah. never want to fall away from the true gospel, yeah. especially those who are in leadership. But it really every person is in some form of leadership because God has placed them in a unique position in their lives. And so I admire leaders. I've, I've spoken with many leaders who have severe responsibilities that are really shouldering a huge mantle. And what I find so interesting is how often and frequently and hard they fight for their own purity and for their own clarity of mind when it comes to doctrine. Like they really fight hard for that every day through prayer and through study. And I, I think that's telling because I think they have the right idea in mind, yeah. which is that little compromises uh, never end and they only result in a, a serious fall at some point. And having you and I spoken on this podcast, even like colloquially and kind of, I would say almost anecdotally about, many preachers, many leaders, many pastors and teachers who have fallen away from the faith or have come under some kind of really you know, shameful behavior. And in so much as, as we can tell, and as they express 
the background of that stuff that it's always because of small compromises yeah. that just get out of hand. I mean, isn't that really the story of falling? Yeah. I mean, it's the same as I said earlier. There's very few people that explode onto the scene as like full blown false teachers. And there's very few people who um, go straight to breaking the uh, vows to remain chaste in marriage without, you know, a hundred incremental steps before that could have right. had any at any one point they refused to take a step farther would have stopped the whole thing. Right. So, you know, a lot of times we we're like two or three steps down the pathway of sin before we even realize we're on that pathway. And where that decision point comes in, whether whether it's false teaching or or a more practical kind of sin, where the decision point comes in is, am I going to continue to walk down this pathway or am I going to turn around and walk off of the pathway? It's it's a rare person who consistently fails or consistently sees the pathway towards sin before they take a step on it. Um, you know, right. someday in glory, we, there won't even be a pathway to sin. And in increasing fashion, we recognize those pathways and we we don't we don't start to walk on them. But you're always going to find yourself at some point walking towards a sin and you have to decide, do I do I keep walking? Right. Or do I do I turn around and go back towards righteousness? And, you know, none of this is to earn your salvation. None of this is to do any of that. But we are called to die unto sin and to live unto righteousness. So I think it's important right. to sort of recognize that incrementality to sin and then also just to recognize like it could get any of us. Like it's out there crouching for you and you can it can get you. You're not above yeah. falling into sin. Right. It's it's at the door. It's waiting for you. Yeah. And so what's amazing is that God in his loving kindness has basically made provision for a way out. So first, of course, Paul speaks about we speak about like illicit or obvious temptation that God will never tempt us beyond our means, but always show a way out. But even at that, that presumes something that God allows for. And that is for us to come to him and say, God, I just don't know enough. I don't have enough wisdom to be able to perceive most of the time. And so I love that even in the, in his opening, you know, James is saying, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God because he gives it generously to all without reproach and it will be given him, but just ask for it in faith. And I think that that's something as Christians, like we just don't often do, or we have really deep prayer times. We're just asking God that he would give us wisdom, not wisdom to be you know, better employees, not wisdom to be better husbands or fathers, but merely just that godly wisdom which allows us to better discern when we are stepping into sin and then have the wisdom to quickly repent of it and to actually turn away 180 degrees and to walk in the other direction by the power of the Holy Spirit. I find that that's very convicting for me because that kind of wisdom, this godly wisdom, that the, the sole benefit is to have a life of abundance and one of obedience where, you know, of course, like when God through Micah is, is condemning these prophets, he's coming at them hard. Like there's, I mean, this language is tough in here. We just talked about cannibalism in the last podcast. Yeah. God's not, of course, just like a giant meanie, of course, saying, well, here are all these rules that I have for you. You must follow them. When God says no, what he really means is don't hurt yourself. So there's a kindness even in this, even though it's harsh, because the harshness yeah. of God is really softer than anything we could hope for. And there's true love embodied in this judgment there. I mean, that's probably as good a place as anywhere to kind of pivot a little bit. And then talk about in these next couple of verses, these false prophets and how they're going to be judged and shamed by God's silence. Yeah. So what, what do you think of like verse six and how that kind of pivots and transitions a little bit away from what we're just talking about? Yeah, I mean, this this um, goes to kind of what we started talking about a little bit that this seems to indicate I when I first read this argument, I was a little bit dubious. I, I was like, no, 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 no. These are false prophets from the start. But this really yeah. does seem to indicate that there were these people, probably people that were Micah's peers and, and, and colleagues. Right? The, right. the prophets interacted with each other. Right. There's there's there was a school of prophets, but there was also sort of like this informal college of prophets where you see them interacting with each other. You see them referencing each other's writings at times. And so these are probably people that Micah was familiar with, that he was aware of, certainly people he's addressing now. And all of a sudden now he's saying basically like, you thought it was bad before. Now it's going to be like night. There's no vision. 
You're right. going to be without divination. The sun is going down on you. You're going to be in the darkness. The day will be like blackness to you. And so there really is this element of kind of shutting down and closing off the, the prophets. And, you know, one of the things, it, it's not the case that God was utterly inactive during the so-called 400 years of silence. God was actually doing a lot of things in the 400 years of silence between Malachi and Matthew. Um, but the the words of prophecy had been sealed up, right? So there right. was this robust era of prophecy around the time of the kings where God was through the prophets, God was calling Israel back to repentance. And then they went into exile and there was this minor era of prophecy after they returned from exile, but there really is. So, so obviously Micah is talking to the prophets immediately in front of him. But then as we go, we go into the exile, we come out of the exile Prophecy as a whole is becoming more and more rare, more and more, more and more quiet until God silences all of the words of prophecy. And, and that's not only a judgment on these individual prophets, but it's also a judgment on the people, right? Because, you know, where there is no, where there's no vision, the people perish, right? I know that the, the charismatics, uh, the ultra charismatics take that way off the rails. But the fact of the matter is what God is saying is where there is no prophetic word of scripture, where there's no communication from God, there is nothing but death and misery. And so as the right. prophets themselves are being shamed and their, their words are being sealed, so also the people are increasingly being withdrawn from the word of God over time. Right. The literal phrasing of verse six is excellent. Yeah. It reads, there shall be to you a night from vision. Yeah. Which I think I just love that phraseology as it kind of as a little translation in English, because here's what's interesting. First, Micah doesn't say you guys are just going to be blind. So what we have here is, you know, night is often a representation of God's great judgment. Yeah. So it's the taking away of the vision by way of the judgment. And so here you have presumably, and again, I think this, this really is a boon for this idea that these false teachers were once wholly devoted to God because they have, in some respect, clearly just in this passage, the authority of the people. So it's possible no one dared speak against them. They were certainly respected in some light. And what God's saying here is, I will strip those false teachers of their superficial outward dignity. And I'm going to have all these calamities press upon these false prophets so overwhelmingly as to compel them to cease to pretend that they can actually divine. I'm going to take it all away. And it's going to be in in a sense of overwhelming gloom and darkness in judgment and and their lost ability to perceive spiritually, which again is, is almost in line with this, what we've been talking about, the disease, the spiritual disease of this people generally. And here it's being basically manifested in these leaders. I think there's a lot, there's a lot, I think in this for our modern context. I love, let me just read what John Calvin wrote on this verse, because of course he's among the best and says it so succinctly. He says, the whole world shall understand that you, he's talking to the false prophets are not what you boast yourselves to be. For I will show that there is not in you. No, not a particle of the prophetic spirit but that ye are men as dark as night and darkness shall be to you instead of divination. Ye boast of great acuteness and great perspicuity of mind, but I will discover your baseness so that the very children may know that you are not endued with the spirit. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, that, that brings us, and I want to spend a little bit of time on this. That brings us to verse eight where Micah now contrasts the prophets, the false prophets who are being sealed and shut up with now him and and by extension the other true prophets who continue to proclaim God's word and you know there's there's beautiful trinitarian implications here that I'm sure we'll talk about but he says as for me i am filled with power and with the spirit of the lord and with justice and might and so so he's saying that while there were these false prophets that were proclaiming peace and were proclaiming prosperity and, and may or may not have at one point been true prophets. They no longer are. They no longer have any power. They no longer have, if they ever did, the spirit of God empowering their ministry. But now for the true followers and prophets of God, they are endued not just with power, but with God himself. Right. And I think that's key for us because, you know, sometimes I think as reformed Christians, 
um, you know, we very much are a people who live in exile, right? So we are a people who live in sort of an alien land. We're among a people of alien cultures. We don't really fit in, or at least we shouldn't fit in. Um, our worship is strange to those, uh, a lot of times, even within the church who want the flashiness of modern worship. Um, and, and so we, we have to recognize that we, we don't need to worry about what's going on with them because as for me, as for us, we're endued with the spirit of the Lord. That's not to say that there aren't Christians out there who have other kinds of worship or other church arrangements that we would say are an error that don't have the spirit of the Lord. That's not what I'm saying, but we shouldn't look at the failure of the church in other quarters as something negative. I think oftentimes we do that. We sort of lament the fact that there are certain parts of the church that seem to be in decline. Well, the reality is God is shutting down. He's, he's setting the sun on the false prophecy of, of false Christianity, right? Christianity, right. Christendom had an enormous amount of power and with it became, uh, came a lot of wealth and prosperity that then was used to oppress people, right? Now that we have uh, kind of come into this post-Christian age and that that power and that influence is on the wane, we're sort of frustrated by at times, but we shouldn't be because true Christianity is as powerful as it ever was because the same spirit that empowered it in the, the book of Acts is the same spirit that empowers true Christian fellowship, true Christianity today, and nothing can right stop on. that. And so just as Micah is saying, those false prophets no longer have any power. They no longer have any prophecy. You know, they're, the seers have been disgraced. The diviners have been put to shame. They'll cover their mouths because there's nothing from God for them. But as for me, as for me, a prophet of the Lord, I have the power and the spirit of the Lord. And that's, that's really where we need to understand ourselves. That's where we need to go. When we go into these dark places, spiritually dark, intellectually dark, right? Um, Planned Parenthood, for example, just um, put out a statement that they're going to be funding basically funding political campaigns. I mean, how much more overt do you get than that, right? They're straight up saying, we're going to pay to put people in office that we believe will forward our, our agenda. And it's the darkest, most vilest, evilest agenda that we have seen in a long time, right? The, there are other things that the the liberal, the, uh, theologically and politically liberal left have done that are bad, but the advocacy for the murder of unborn children is as evil as it gets, right? That still is not something that we need to fret about because our Lord is in control and we have the spirit of the Lord. So we should be bold to go into those dark places just as Micah was and proclaim the gospel, proclaim the law, proclaim God's truth in those dark places because when we do that, the power of the spirit of the Lord and the spirit of the Lord, who is also justice and might, lives and dwells in us and empowers our message. And he will bring about whatever effect he intends to bring about. Right. There's a lot with Micah here that we should try to emulate. And it's, it is amazing that he starts off that sentence by saying, I am full of power. Because yeah. If you'd ask the average Christian perhaps to say that, they'd feel uncomfortable with that kind of phraseology, even though you'd, they'd acknowledge that, well, it's, it's not the power isn't me, but it is the power resides in right. me by the Holy Spirit. But here he's out front about it. He just says, I'm full of power. And this is, as you said, the spirit of Yahweh, which imparts for the discharge of that prophetic function. Right. And we, I think what we need to, to be careful about here is to recognize that the spirit that he speaks of here and the one that you just spoke about that indwells us is the same spirit throughout the entire scriptures. So like, for instance, I just pull up these verses in Luke because as you were speaking, they came to my mind. Luke 1, 17. Again, listen to how the spirit is being described here. With the spirit and power of Elijah, he, that is Jesus, will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Or in reference to what you're talking about with Pentecost, in Luke 24, and see, I am sending upon you what my father promised. So stay here in the city until you have been clothed with power from on high. Yeah. So you're right. Like we need a different 
sensibility about who we are. We need a different awareness that this Holy Spirit brings the full power of God and that we shouldn't shy away from that. And so I think that changes then, of course, the conversations we were just talking about in correcting error. But it also means that, again, we might we can ask for wisdom. We can ask for wherewithal. We can ask for discipline in our lives. And we can be transformed and changed. Like we shouldn't have a defeatist attitude, even about our own bad habits. In so yeah. much as we are coming before God and saying, by the power of your Holy Spirit, will you change me? Will you fill me? Will you transform me more into the likeness of your son so that I might be obedient? So I might shine more brightly for those who need to see light in dark places. So it, it's just this wonderful continuity. You, in other words, in the scriptures, you never have a place where you're like, okay, so that's the spirit there. That's not the same one that I have. So I need right. to make a distinction here. It's always everywhere, the spirit, and he's always everywhere comes in power. That's just such great encouragement. Yeah. Yeah. And of course, you know, I think we would be doing uh, a disservice if we didn't just comment on this briefly. We're, we're kind of wrapping up here, but this is one of those spots in the Old Testament where the doctrine of the Trinity is on full display, right? Because yes. there's no bones being picked in this passage about the fact that the spirit of the Lord is seen as distinct from the Lord, right? The, right. the, the language here is so clear that we're not talking about some extension of God's impersonal power. We're not talking about some sort of like circumlocution or, or euphemism, uh, designed to to not speak too closely about God. What we're talking about here is this distinct entity called the Spirit of the Lord that fills the prophet. And, you know, all throughout here, we talk about the Lord. Uh, Thus says the Lord, they will cry to the Lord. Um, it is not the Lord in the midst of us. You know, we get to later. The Lord is a figure here, right? It's not as though right. the, the prophet is shy about talking about the Lord directly. Right. That's one of the explanations that sometimes people give of these spirit passages in the Old Testament is that, well, the, 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 the Hebrews are trying to be indirect about the Lord. So rather than say the Lord did something or the Lord revealed something, they say the word of the Lord or the spirit of the Lord. But there is no hint of shyness anywhere here in this passage. And what exactly. I find is really interesting is, you know, there's this passage in Amos um, where the prophet says, uh, let me pull it up because I don't want to misquote it. It says, for this is Amos 3.7, he says, For the Lord does nothing without revealing his secret to his servant, the prophets. And then in the book of Hebrews, um, you know, the, the author of Hebrews basically says that the entire economy of redemption, uh, the, the heavenly tabernacle, which is Christ, was revealed to Moses. And so all of the earthly implements were made after the pattern of the heavenly ones. And right. so there's all these passages which seem to imply that at the very least Moses, but I think the prophets in general, had this theological glimpse into reality that we we sometimes don't give them credit for. And so when 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 Micah says the spirit of the Lord fills me or I am filled with the spirit of the Lord. I don't think we should think that he is somehow like ignorantly making this Trinitarian statement without realizing it. And, yeah, and exactly. we see this kind of statement all throughout the Old Testament, but especially in the later prophetic books, we see this distinction between Yahweh, the, the word of Yahweh and the spirit of Yahweh. And yes, we can see that with more clarity after the, after the Christ, so-called Christ event, if you want to even call it the Christ event. When we, we look at the life and ministry of Jesus and then the coming of the Holy Spirit, we see these passages almost infinitely more clearly than the people in the era would. But the prophets were given this special insight into the very nature and being of God that even we with the Holy Scriptures don't necessarily have access to. So we right. should we should see these passages. And here's when it comes, you know, this goes back to the idea of polemics. We should not be shy about using these passages to demonstrate the reality of the Trinity. Whether we're talking to other Christians who want to make it seem as though the doctrine of the Trinity is sort of a New Testament thing and it wasn't really there in the Old Testament, or whether we're talking to heretics like Oneness Pentecostals or Mormons, or whether we're talking to non-Christians who are attacking the faith like uh, Muslims or Jews who want to undercut the doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament, we should not be shy about utilizing these clearly Trinitarian passages to justify and explain right. the doctrine of the Trinity from Scripture. If anything, we should we should 
we should hit the Old Testament passages extra hard because that eliminates the idea that somehow people were just trying to explain this Jesus thing. Well, they weren't trying to explain the Jesus thing in the Old Testament. There, there wasn't a Jesus thing yet to explain. So Micah had no ulterior Christian motive to try to explain who this Jesus was. He was just proclaiming what God had given him. Right. Yeah, he just has insight. I mean, it right. sounds obvious to say, but why else would he say it like this? Yeah. <laughs> Unless he actually understood to some extent and knew. And again, it was a prophetic word to him because... You're right. The language is so consistent. It's almost interesting, more funny to me that like when we get to the New Testament, we find all of the same language referring to the spirit in the Old Testament just being appropriated again. Even Jesus yeah. himself, when he reads from Isaiah, says the spirit of the Lord is upon me. It, it's We're talking about the same language and it's just there with this wonderful, again, continuity in the scriptures, explaining the Trinity in every place of the scriptures, not just in one place. And here you have it. And in, in the midst of this incredible judgment here you have and this juxtaposition between here are these guys that are just getting it all wrong and then micah comes in it's like full stop i love that sentence like i i'm filled with power uh it, it i mean and that's the same thing that all christians can claim and this power i think one way to maybe wrap this up is to say like this power though is not knock everybody out cage stage style beat everybody over the head right it's we have in micah there was he was guided by judgment and discretion he was a man of wisdom as well as courage and in all his preaching there was light i think as well as heat and a spirit of wisdom as well as a spirit of zeal that is being full of the power of the holy spirit yeah and i think that we know it when we see it because it's difficult to be all those things in balance Usually when you could become uh, misguided and you end up in one extreme, you know that you're not exercising the spirits in a way that is true to uh, the, the content, and the quality and the character of God himself. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's probably a good place to wrap it up is, you know, we, we look at these passages and what we see is God's judgment on those who have departed from the truth. Right. In the the judicial realm at the beginning of of Micah three, it's people who have departed from the truth of God's law and the the priorities that God has placed. We saw that earlier when he's talking about how they've kind of neglected the inheritance laws. And now, you know, that's the that's the the wealthy elite, the landowners who have now disregarded the law. We have the judges of Israel, the kings of Israel who've disregarded their responsibility to execute justice. Now we have the prophets who've who've neglected their duty to proclaim God's word faithfully. So we, we see all these people who have neglected God's word and it didn't start with a wholesale denial of the reality of, of God's uh, truth, right? It all started exactly. with degrees and shades. Every, every stolen piece of land started with a single shady deal, right? Every miscarriage of justice started with a single bad verdict, which which favored the wealthy or resulted from a bribe. Every single right. false teacher began with a single false teaching. So we should take this and we should understand it and we should be cautious lest we fall and become one of the false teachers that the sun sets on. And I want to bring us all the way back to the beginning and say, one, what you should do is go out with some good friends or even some new friends, have a, have a, a beer, a good drink and get together and read why we're Protestant <laughs> introduction yeah. to the five souls of the Reformation, because it's, it's texts like this and uh, pastor Nate Pickowitz does this so well pulls us back into our confession, pulls us back into understanding why we believe what we believe and knowing what we believe. And so it's as if, of course, God has given us knowledge. He's given us wisdom. He's given us the scriptures so that there wouldn't be just this ephemeral sense that there are things that must guide our lives, but that there are actual things. And so to know those things is to be safe to know those things is to live an abundant life. And to know those things is to experience, I think, the blessing and the pleasure of God, not because you're transacting salvation, but because you're living the way that we were intended to live and being free from error in so much as we're able to on this side of heaven. So the, that's why, what a time to be alive, right? Like yeah. you listen to podcasts, you can get all the access to all these amazing works. You can go to like monergism.com and download, I don't know, like 6 million free 
texts from the Puritans. I know. There's all this wonderful stuff to fill our minds. And if that wasn't enough to have the scriptures in like every conceivable way, on like every conceivable vice and every conceivable medium, and yet we are so slack with investing ourselves into those things and meditating and metabolizing them. Yeah. Man, there's a lot of conviction falling on me yeah. in this particular conversation. I hear you. Well, Jesse, I think next week <laughs> is Reformed Preaching Cast, isn't it? Yes, it's Bookcast. Bookcast. Is it Bookcast? It is Bookcast, I think. Uh, yeah, it's Bookcast. Great. I love Bookcast. It feels like it's been We're... an extra long amount of time since we had the last Bookcast, but I don't think it has. I just miss it that much. I listen, I just love books. I love reading books. I love reading books with you and talking about books that we're reading together. There you go. So we are working our way through Reform Preaching by <laughs> Joel Beakey. I thought that that was the book you were going to say you read every year. And I was like, it's only been out for a year, Jesse. Uh, no, I, I mean, that it, that's a serious book. But that, what a blessing that book has been, right? I mean, yeah. again, one I, we say this every time, but people... Grab a copy of this book. It's not too late. The chapters are somewhat compartmentalized anyway, so you can just jump in with us and continue on. I actually don't remember. What, what chapter are we on? Chapter 10. We're like not even halfway through yet. Oh, yeah. There's plenty of time to come on this journey. So get on the Reformed Preaching Train. And I uh, that's already a horrible metaphor. I, got, I was going to say something about <laughs> punching a ticket. <laughs> or, you know, like, even if you're on the caboose, like, yeah, it just it already, it was one of those things, as soon as I started the metaphor, I was like, I regret this you're instantly. Like, I've made a horrible mistake. But there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I there's can do. The nothing. words are already out of my mouth. This is zero editing podcast, people. It's true. No edits. It's true. We don't work with a net. We're just up there living the dream. It's true. Every once in a while we fall like the flying Walendas is. <laughs> Too soon? Too soon? <laughs> like 60 years ago right yeah i don't i don't know what the statute limitations are i'm making circus related jokes i I have no idea (laughs) i did see a video on youtube the other day i don't even know how this came up where like an entire circus family fell off the high wire like into the middle of the like central stage like right in front of everybody i don't think anybody died but like a bunch of them had to go to the hospital yeah that's i yeah, that, that's a whole nother world right there. I haven't I haven't been to the circus in like forever. Is the circus still a thing? I think so. I don't even like to walk down the stairs. I can't imagine being on like a high right, like a high wire. You know what's funny is recently there's a as you know like where we live there's a train crossing, and I would say maybe this is like a couple years ago. My wife and I were sitting at the crossing. We happened to be the first ones there, and the train is going past. And all of a sudden, we notice it's not usually it's just like freight. But in this particular time, it was like actual cars. And then we noticed that actually it was labeled Barnum and Bailey Circus. And here's the funny thing. Like we were very disappointed that like there wasn't like a giraffe's head sticking out of one of the cars <laughs> or like an elephant, you know, like, you know, just just hanging out the back. It was like very underwhelming. We were kind of like, where where are like the animals? Where's like the fun stuff that you picture happens on circus trains? Like a, like a clown hanging out the window like and the waving animal, everybody. Like the animal it, crackers it, cart. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like nobody ever was... thought about like what happens when the giraffe car gets to a tunnel. <laughs> they get on the <laughs> yeah, other side and like, oh, we need another giraffe. That's Somebody awful. get the hose. That's all. Oh, listen. This just got we really dark. Mail, we do not, we do not condone giraffe violence. No, I know that's what way. I'm saying. They need to think it through a little bit more carefully. <laughs> the first guy who figured out that wasn't going to work had a big mess to clean up. Oh man, that poor yeah, giraffe. That's man. that's probably true. I read about that on the same well, news website that I read about uh, Pastor Appreciation Day finding its origin in the Reformation. <laughs> I'm, here's the thing: I'm eagerly awaiting that article that let's you're going to write with the thing, long people. quotation from Luther. Yeah, I, yeah. Let's do it. I just need to throw a few like choice words like fart and poop, and maybe like potpourri, <laughs> and like. Not like potpourri, but like potpourri. Yeah, I need I to throw a few were things you in a great there. Pun? What was that? Were you making a great pun? That I, was like I might have. Potpourri, potpourri, and potpourri. Yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. absolutely great. See, again, there's so much room on Luther that you can pretty much just say all those things. You should make it that it was like it was like thesis number twenty-two or something like that. Like no, it, you just Shelby. have to say that it was in table talk, and then nobody ever looks it up. 
<laughs> because it's impossible <laughs> to find anything in table talks. That's true. Like 95% of point. the most damning uh, quotes that the Romanists will bring to you in a debate are from Luther's table talks. And none of them can actually justify where they got it. True story. I, I was having yeah. a debate. I did a radio debate with a Roman Catholic guy. Oh, it, it must have been seven years ago now. I was living in Connecticut. And um, the guy brought up like the classic quote. He was talking about um, he was talking about uh, Luther wanting to throw out the book of James or something like that. And I yes. literally just said, where did you get that quote? And he cited it from Table Talk. And I said, did you actually pull it up or did you just get it off someone else's PowerPoint presentation? And he goes, well, I got it off someone else's PowerPoint presentation. And I went, no further questions. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah, if you ever want to just make up a Luther quote, just say you found it in Table Talk. And say if you say Vimers, then it sounds real because Vimers has like a big sounds, collection. Yeah, right. Yeah, but you're never going right. to find anything in there. So, so somewhere in Table Talk is where we started um, Pastoral Appreciation Month. This is the, the kind of thing that you can only get on the Reformed Brotherhood yeah. podcast right here. Luther only was here. like... We'll, we'll tell you. Luther was like, listen up, farthead. You better appreciate your <laughs> pastors. And we're going to do it in October, along with our Oktoberfest beers. Poop farter. Please, please write this article <laughs> and please use that as the quote. Yeah, that, is so, that is so good. <laughs> All right, Jesse. We, we need to figure out how to bring this train to a stop. Please, no more train metaphors. I, can't, I, can't I regret stop. everything. I got to get off this train. I regret everything. Yeah, there were definitely off the tracks. Yes. So. All right, Jesse. Well, well, until we did the British oh, we thing just did again. It again. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we can't stop. You go ahead. I, I want to yield and submit to the amazing closure that you're about to bring to this podcast. All right, Jesse. Please. Until next time, honor everyone. Love the Brotherhood. Oh.